Well, you're in for a treat because we have a guest speaker this morning. Uh, but before Jared uh, gets started, there's a couple of things I wanted to do. Uh, one is I just want to share with you like an overall uh, thank you. Um, because, uh, you know, come Christmas time and often in the fall around Thanksgiving uh, is a time that, you know, we maybe we would do some of the things that are going to ask of the congregation that are above and beyond uh, your tithes uh, and offerings. And so I want to thank you for giving to our food drive that we had back in November. Uh, we had a kids versus church uh, food drive. If you remember, it collected uh, hundreds of things. Uh, and the winner of the drive was Ripple Community, uh, who we blessed with that uh, food uh, and allows them to minister to the community. Sure, if you could clap for that. Uh, very thankful. Um, we also ask, and we put a tree out, and uh, you, you took it all in one Sunday uh, as we blessed two families from Seven Generations Charter School uh, in Emmaus. And so you gave them a Christmas along with a meal uh, with turkey and all of the trimmings. So thank you for that uh, as well. You also um, have we had a tree out there for our year-end campaign uh, that I believe uh, right now is what's been given is right around $2,000, again, above um, uh, tithes and offerings, and we're just so uh, grateful for that. And uh, we're also very uh, thankful um, for your pastor appreciation gift in October, uh, and then to come up with a Christmas gift um, for the staff uh, and at Christmas time as well. So I, I'm not sure I'm, uh, on behalf of Pastor Lori, but on behalf of all the rest of the staff, we're thankful. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we are all thankful uh, for your very kind, uh, you know, words and gifts and uh, all of that uh, to express your appreciation uh, for us uh, in this season. So let's just give a hand of thanks to the Lord that enables all of this. Uh, in a season that uh, we might uh, do uh, a little bit uh, extra. Uh, and so this is our guest speaker this morning, uh, Jared Baldwin. And uh, I think that you're in for uh, a real treat today. Why might we have Jared speak other than being, you know, pastor's son? Uh, yet, um, you know, we sense that uh, early on in his life, and actually Jared's uh, kind of really been preaching since he was about 12, uh, you know, sharing with uh friends at school or in school chapels, uh, and uh, before other congregations uh, as well. Um, but uh, there's a couple of things I want you to think in the back of your mind as you're taking in uh, God's Word today. You know, one is that uh, we, the reason we even asked Jared to come, uh, one is just to show you one of the amazing teens uh, that we have uh, in our church uh, we invest a lot here, not only in this generation, but in the one that's coming. Uh, we believe that our kids, um, the kids' ministry, the youth ministry, is not about, you know, just trying to get them through a season to the future of the church, but that they're the church now. And uh, they have gifts, you know, that can be utilized now uh, in the church. And so we so appreciate your investment uh, in that generation that's coming up. Uh, here at Trinity. The other is um, just the identity of gifts, identifying people's gifts um, and, you know, utilizing them. Uh, you know, every great church is not about a great staff doing lots of stuff, but it's a staff that is equipped of people and that we're all doing this together. As you know, we have a goal 
Um, you know, whereas most churches have about 19 to 20% of the people involved in ministry. Uh, our goal uh, here in the next couple of years is to get that to be about 65% at Trinity, uh, where we're identifying gifts and we're all sharing the load of ministry and truly, truly people are being reached uh, with the love of God uh, throughout the Lehigh Valley and out to the world across. So would you join me in uh, giving Jared a warm welcome uh, to Trinity this morning. All right, and then one more announcement on a serious note. Uh, I'd like to update the Baldwin family stance on fruitcake. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So I woke up this morning and the first thought on my mind was, man, I can't listen to Christmas music anymore. Does anyone else feel that? Because I, I love Christmas. It is the greatest time of the year. It's my favorite time of the year. And I wait all year for it. Finally, it hits December. You walk into a store, Christmas music. Turn on the radio, Christmas music. Driving around, you got the Christmas lights. It's awesome. I love Christmas. And there's so much buildup and anticipation. And then it comes. And it was great. I had an awesome Christmas. And now it's over. And I woke up. And I was like... Now what? Anyone else feel this? Or maybe it's not Christmas, maybe it's something else that you were looking forward to and there was anticipation and build up and then it finally happened. But then once it's over, you just lay there like, what do I do now? And I decided to come up with a name for it. I decided to give a term for this feeling, you ready? I wanted to call it the December 26 Dilemma. I thought it sounded pretty cool. Because it's like you wait all year for Christmas, then it finally comes, then you wake up. It's like, now what? Now what do you do after? And the Bible actually has its own form of the December 26 dilemma. Because just like we wait all year for Christmas, the Bible waits all, or the Bible waited for something to come. Starting from the very beginning. When I say very beginning, I mean it. Genesis 1. God created the world and then he put humans on it. And I find it really funny that if Mankind was a TV series, we would not make it to episode two without a catastrophe. Because in episode one, one of the first things that the humans do, that mankind does, is they mess it up. A perfect garden, one of the first things they do is mess it up. And so sin enters the world and sin enters mankind, causing a gap between a perfect God and sinful humans. But as soon as that gap is created, God promises something. He promises, I will send something or someone who will be able to fill that gap, to bridge that gap, so that I can live forever with my people, just how I intended. That was the first prophecy. And then prophecy after prophecy, hundreds of years, and then thousands of years of waiting, finally there's a woman named Mary. And an angel shows up to Mary and says, Mary, you're the one. Mary says, what? Mary says, you're the one who will give birth to the son of the Most High, to the one who will sit on David's throne. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And surely enough, a few months after, Mary gives birth, just as the angel had said. 
Shepherds came, they left their sheep because the angels told them the good news. They wanted to see the child. Choirs of angels came from the sky just to sing their praises to the newborn Messiah. Picture being Mary in this moment. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. What would have been, what must it have been like to give birth to a newborn king? Shepherds just wanted to see him. Angels show up and sing to him. What a scene. But eventually, the angels stopped singing. And eventually, the shepherds went back to their sheep. And it probably would be a silent night if it wasn't for this baby crying and cold. I mean, Mary was promised a Messiah, and she knows that she has it. She knows who this is, but it's just a baby. And the only thing that her and Joseph can do is sit there and ask themselves, now what? This is the Bible's December 26 dilemma. But if we ask, our question, if we ask that question, now what? We can actually look at what happens after the birth of Jesus. Now, we know about Jesus' career in ministry, but what we read about, most of what we read about when he's recruiting disciples and doing miracles and preaching and teaching, that were, it's speculated to have happened when he was probably like lower 30s-ish. So there's about a 30-some year gap between his birth and when he started doing ministry. And it's like, what happens in this gap? We don't know too much, but we do get one story, almost in the middle, when Jesus was 12 years old, about him being forgotten in the temple. We find it in Luke 2, starting at verse 41, and that's the text that I wanted to dive into. Every year, Jesus' parents went to the festival, or went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There's a lot to unpack here. I need to take a drink before we get into it. And when I first read this, I was like, wow. I had so many questions. And I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface today. But let's get into it. I'm going to try to break it down verse by verse, starting right back at verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. So you may be wondering, are they bad parents? 
Probably not, probably not, because here's what would happen. When people like Mary and Joseph were traveling to Jerusalem, making these long journeys for these festivals, they would travel in these things called caravans. And a caravan was basically a large group of families that would travel together. They did that for mostly safety and for ease of the, the, of the journey. So they traveled in these large groups, and so Mary and Joseph lost track of Jesus. They left without him. We'll get to why in a second, but I'm going to keep reading. Verse 44. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him. So here's what happened. They traveled for an entire day. And our question, well, how did they travel for an entire day without realizing? Well, here's probably what happened. Because in these caravans, the boys, or sorry, in these caravans, the boys and the men would travel separately. And so Jesus, he's 12 years old, and that's important because according to their culture and at that time, 12 years old was kind of a stepping off point between childhood and adulthood. So Mary was probably thinking, oh, he's back with Joseph. Joseph was probably thinking, oh, he's up with Mary. But he wasn't. They left him home alone. Sorry, wrong movie. They left him back in Jerusalem. And so I was reading this. I was thinking, wait a second. They traveled for a day, and then they realized, which means they had to travel back for another day. And then they searched for three days, which means Jesus was unsupervised in Jerusalem for five days at 12 years old. Oof. And they couldn't just call back to the police department. They didn't have phones or police, and so the only thing that they could do is worry. I mean, imagine the mom guilt that Mary must be feeling. I mean, how many parents have lost a, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. How many parents have lost a kid? Or if you haven't, I'm sure that you've imagined losing a child. And I'm sure that my mom would tell me, oh, there's nothing worse than the mom guilt. The mom guilt just eats you up inside. What could I have done? I should have done this, I should have done that. The mom guilt, right? There's nothing worse except there is. What's worse? whatever Mary must have been feeling. Because picture this, she has that mom guilt. And yes, she is the mother of Jesus, but also like that's God's son. So she's also like kind of a babysitter. She's a mother, but she's also kind of a babysitter. So she's got that mom guilt. Then she's got that babysitter who just lost the child's guilt. And then, hey, let's throw on there, that was Jesus, Mary, and he's gone. So <laughs> I cannot imagine what Mary must have been feeling. And I wrote in my notes, how do you pray about this? <laughs> if you're Mary and you lost Jesus, imagine that days back trek to Jerusalem, like, hey, God, um, you know that child that you gave, your son? Yeah, that one, yeah. I lost him. <laughs> like, what do you say at that moment? But like I said, Jesus was unsupervised for five days. So what did he do during those five days? Well, the real answer is we don't exactly know. We don't know exactly what he was doing during those five days. But we can throw out a pretty good guess, and I'll get to that in a second. But why didn't we know what happened during those five days? Because the story is told from Mary's perspective. That's significant for a few reasons. We read this in the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke would go around and talk to, say, disciples or people that traveled with Jesus or people like Mary who knew Jesus very well. And he would talk to them, give them an interview or have a meeting with them. And then he would take the accounts of their stories and put that into his Gospel. 
And so we read this story, it's based on Mary's perspective, well, more like it's written based on an account that Mary would have given. So what happens to Jesus when Mary wasn't with, her, wasn't with him? We don't know exactly, because it's told from Mary's perspective. But, like I said, we can throw out a pretty good guess, and to do that, let's keep reading. Verse 48, uh, no, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when I first read this, I paused. Because something, something didn't sound right. It didn't, it didn't flow right. And I had to read it again a few times until I figured out what it was. The two verses here kind of contrast each other. They don't contradict, but they paint two different narratives. Because the first verse, at verse 46, says they found him in the temple court sitting among the teachers. And it says that Jesus was listening to them and asking them questions. But then right after that, it says the teachers were amazed at Jesus' understanding and Jesus' answers. I was like, the fact that they're right next to each other doesn't, doesn't really make sense. And as I was trying to figure out, I asked myself another question. What kind of questions does Jesus ask? And I had to think about that for a bit. And if you really want to go down that rabbit hole, it's a great study. But I decided to look at the questions that we actually have on record of Jesus asking in the Gospels during his, his full career of ministry with the disciples and the preaching and the teaching. And I realized something. I realized that Jesus did not ask a question to obtain knowledge that he did not have. Jesus would ask questions so that the person he was talking to would think about their answers. Think about the answer. Think of it like that, and I'm going to read it again at verse 46. After three days they found him in the temple court sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And the teachers were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Makes a little bit more sense. Let's move on to verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Why? Why didn't they understand? Here's why. Because you have to read it again, but look at the usage of the word father. This is what confused them, because Mary goes up to Jesus and says, your father and I, referring to Joseph, who's probably out of breath right next to each other, just been running around Jerusalem. She says, your father and I, Joseph. And Jesus says, hey, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? God. Two different people, same word, father. And so that's probably why in this context, in this conversation, that's probably why they were confused. They knew who he was, but at the time, they were confused. And then we have verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. So I kind of laughed when I heard this. Because like I said, this, this whole account is written based off of what Mary would have told Luke. And so I kind of pictured Mary kind of feeling guilty for telling this story. Like, oh yeah, Jesus stayed back and I was anxious and it was awful. But then she had to throw in there, but he was a good kid still, right? Have you ever talked to a mom, like a kid in elementary or middle school or high school or with like a 40-year-old, right? They always want to brag about their children. And so Mary just had to throw in there, but he was still a good kid. Make sure you write that down. So Luke put, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient. 
Still in verse 51, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Why'd she do that? No, really, if you read the story, Mary is anxious and stressed, and she went five days after losing the Son of God. She was like, that was a good time, wasn't it? Well, <laughs> if you think about it, Mary was telling this story to Luke years after this had happened. Jesus had probably grown up. He was 12 at the time, so he had grown up. He had done his ministry years after everything. So she had time to process it, and she had time to understand what it really was. It was Jesus preparing for his ministry in the temple. And so even though at the time it was an awful memory, it was an awful time for her, anxious and stressed, but she still treasured these things in her heart. Then we have the final verse. Oof, this one messed me up. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And the thing is, when I first read this verse, I'm like, oh yeah, I've heard this before. Because back in New York, I went to a small Christian school, and this was the school's theme verse. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. So I heard, and I heard, I heard. Every time I heard, it just went over my head, and I didn't think about it. But as I was preparing to talk about it, then I started thinking about it. And I was like, wait a second. How does Jesus grow in wisdom? Then I keep, I, I kept reading. And it's like, and Jesus grew in stature. That makes sense. There's a big difference between a 12-year-old boy and a 30-year-old man. So he grew physically. That's what it's trying to say. That makes sense. And he grew in favor with God. Why does the Son of God need to grow in favor with God? And he grew in favor with man. That would make sense. Because hopefully, the more you get to know people, the more they look upon you favorably. So that's what it's saying is more people got to know Jesus, and the more people that he associated himself with, he grew in favor with them. They viewed him favorably. But two of those still didn't make sense. Why did Jesus need to grow in wisdom? And why did Jesus need to grow in favor with God? So I looked into it. And if you really want to, this is another one where you can, do, you can go deep down the rabbit hole of studying this. But when I was looking into it, I found a verse that was pretty interesting. And this time, it's not in the Gospels. This time, we're going back to the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 2, 26. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Interesting. See, these two verses are what I like to call parallel verses, right? I know that it's probably been a while since a lot of us have taken a math class, but parallel lines are the ones that, um, sorry, I'm homeschooled. Um, they have the same structure. You know what I mean? They have the same structure. They're written in the same format. And so in the first verse, we have Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And then in Samuel, we have Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Same structure. They're parallel. And I was like, why? Why would the author do that? Because you know it's intentional, right? The Bible is the first hyperlinked book. He's like, you wanna, you're going to want to look back at this one. It's true. And so he, he wanted to pose a correlation between Jesus and Samuel. Why? Because if you look at Samuel, there's something really interesting about him. Samuel was a very special character in the Old Testament. Why? Because Samuel was a prophet. He would give God's truth to God's people. That's in essence what a prophet does. He was a prophet. Samuel was also a priest. Samuel was also 
a king. Think about that. Because what we're comparing here is the boy Samuel, and then Jesus in this passage referred to the boy Jesus. It's referring to them as youth preparing for something great. Because just as Samuel would go on to become a prophet, a priest, and a king, look out. Because here comes Jesus, who's about to become the prophet, the priest, and the king. And like I said, at the essence of these two verses is preparation for something great, for a career that will leave a large impact. What exactly was Jesus preparing for? Well, we all know that Jesus had a mission. And in order to talk about that mission, I wanted to paint a picture, but I'm going to need some help. So I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, this is Paul speaking, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul was given a thorn. What is a thorn? Well, he goes on to list. Weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, difficulties. Paul was given a thorn. And the first thing he did was say, God, can you please take this away? He says, I pleaded with God three times to take this away from me. And that's what you should do, right? As soon as you come up against something that's really bothering you, difficulty, hardship, insult, persecution, weakness, that's the first thing you should do is go to God and say, God, can you take this away from me? But he doesn't. Instead, God responds to him. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, I think about these verses a lot. Like out of all the verses in the Bible, these ones are disproportionately on my mind a lot. I think it's because I don't understand them fully. I don't know if I ever will, probably not, but when I was looking into them, I realized something. Because I asked myself a question. Why is God's power made perfect in weakness? You may be asking, what do you mean? Here's the thing. God didn't create weakness. Why is God's power made perfect in weakness? Because it talks about the thorn, weakness, hardship, insults, persecution, difficulty. Why is God's power made perfect in weakness? He didn't create it, no. He conquered it. How about that? God didn't create weakness, but his power is made perfect through it. Because even though he didn't create it, he conquered it. I'm talking about the cross. And as you look back to Jesus on the cross, you read something interesting. 
Because after they nailed him to it, they also placed a sign above his head. And it read, King of the Jews. And they didn't do that to honor him or exalt him. No, they did that to mock him. And they did that to mock his followers. So as they walked by this public display, they could go, oh, this is your king? The one that's hanging and dying on a cross, this is your king? They thought that they could mock him. Calling him, oh, he's the king of the Jews. And every king needs a crown. So it says the soldiers twisted up a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head. They didn't just place it. Why is God's power made perfect in weakness? No, he didn't create it. But he decided not to take a crown of gold like a king, because he says, gold, I paved the streets with that. No, I'm going to wear a crown of thorns on the cross, because he took our thorns to the cross, and he died with them. But then he rose again to triumph over them, because no, he did not create weakness, but he took it to the cross and he conquered it. So his power is made perfect in weakness because he took the crown of thorns to the cross and he died with it. But he rose again to conquer it, to triumph over it. And that's why the Bible says, at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because he is the king and he took our thorns to the cross, wore them as a crown, as a display of his power and he died with them. But then he rose again to triumph over them. His power is made perfect in weakness. Not because he created it. Because in the garden there was no weakness. There was no trials, hardships, difficulties, insults, persecution, no. And because of his sacrifice, we're going to return to that someday. But although he did not create it, at the beginning of time, God sent his son to conquer it. So he said, my grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> but my power is made perfect in weakness. But here's the thing. <laughs> Before the cross, before the crown, talking before the miracles, before his preaching, before his teaching, before all of that, there was a baby. And let's put ourselves back in Mary's shoes. Because she just gave birth, and shepherds just wanted to see the king. Choirs of angels wanted to sing their praises to him. But then they stopped singing, and then the shepherds left. And like I said, it would be silent in this moment if it wasn't for the baby crying in cold. And the only thing for Mary to do was to sit there and wonder, what now? And if you find yourself in a situation today or any time, 
where you're asking yourself, what now? Where you're asking yourself, what do I do now? I just want you to know that there is always something to hope for on the horizon. Because that is the December 26 dilemma. Will you please pray with me? Dear God, I thank you for bringing us all together today. And I thank you for what you did on the cross. Because at the beginning of time, you told us that I will fill that gap so that I can be with you forever because I love you. And Lord, just like you promised at the beginning, you did. And you took our thorns, you took them to the cross, God, so that you won the war. Now we have some battles to fight, and Lord, I know that we can fight those battles because it's not through our power, but it's through your power, which is made perfect in weakness. Thank you, God, for what you did for us in this room and for everyone else. Lord, I pray that everyone would know what you did for them. I pray that everyone, even when they are weak, they will realize it's your power through us, God. Thank you, Lord. And in your name, we all come together. In your name we pray. Amen.